0: This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Usually, when a baby first enters the world, there's that life-affirming sound of the baby's cry and the joyous response from parents, family, medical caregivers in the room. But that's not what happened when Megan Nix gave birth to her daughter Anna in 2015. And Megan, in your book, Remedies for Sorrow, you write that something was really different with Anna from... The moment she was
1: born, can you describe the moment of her birth? She was born at dawn, and so the room was really dimly lit when when I gave birth to her. And when the midwife held her up above my body, she was completely silent. And she had dark eyes and dark hair and just stared straight into me. I could tell that she was alive, but she didn't make any sound at all. And we looked at each other in this suspension of sound until the midwife placed her over my chest where she breathed but still remained without any kind of scream or cry or anything until... An OB was called, and she was brought to the corner, to the little baby Mm -hmm. warming table. And a couple providers huddled around her, jostled her with some towels, and and finally she did let out a scream. But her initial silence was a tone that was set for the rest of her life, really. And her silence is something that was much deeper than I realized Mm. at the time, though I felt that there was something really really different about her and worrisome and mysterious at the same time.
0: Yeah, you kind of knew from the start. I understand how that is, that you just have this intuitive connection with your baby from the moment they're born. What was uh, uh, the midwife's demeanor when when your daughter was born?
1: There was a palpable concern in the room, but nobody really said anything. Everybody sort of just looked at Anna, my daughter, for some signal that she was going to be okay, and I started asking, is she okay, is she okay? And um, I don't really remember the midwife's response, but the doctor said, she's okay, but she's only five pounds, and she was full term. She was 40 weeks, and so five pounds was alarmingly small for a full-term baby. Mm -hmm.
0: You know, I'm thinking back to when uh, my kiddos were born and that first moment where you know you're holding your brand new baby, and you're 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 seeing how they're opening their eyes and the even though they're still covered in goop, you know the smell of the baby mm-hmm. and the little yawn they might do or they might try to latch on or their hair. I mean, these are all moments of forming that that maternal bond with your child. and and mm-hmm. you kind of, like I said, intuitively know that things are, all these little actions show that your baby's here real and okay. It was was Anna
1: like that aside from the silence? Definitely. Okay. Definitely. She I beheld her with awe and yet there there was this I describe it in the book as a gong kind of ringing inside of me, this alarm bell amidst the love and the intimacy of the moment. Yeah. <clears throat> there was just this knowledge that there was something else about her that I didn't understand quite yet.
0: And what was that something else? Because I, you write early in the book that other people noticed that there was something a little bit different
1: about Anna, like the, the hospital photographer. Mm-hmm. So after we left the delivery room, we then made our way to the mom-baby unit. And my parents had purchased an in-house photographer to take pictures and— when the photographer was taking that set, Anna's eyes never closed. Usually newborns are so sleepy and they sleep through all the photos. Their eyes are closed. <laughs> and for hours, she just stared. She just had these clear, dark blue eyes as they lightened from that first moment in the dark room. And she looked out the window. She looked at me. It was it was like she... You know, I might be sort of imposing this upon her, and maybe she was just awake. But it seemed like she needed her eyes to see because something else was not in place at the time. Uh-huh. and and, you know, we we later figured out what that was as we got to know her,
0: yeah. well, obviously, we're going to talk about that in in detail and what caused it as well. But, I mean, this this story really gripped me, Um, Megan, obviously, because I've been through uh, this twice, but had a different outcome. But I I can intimately relate to um, all the questions that that come about, you know, in the first days and weeks of a new child, a new baby's life. You you write about how your husband actually wasn't there when Anna was born because he was doing his job uh, out on a fishing boat. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so that was also in place in her delivery and, and my recovery was that my husband was not there. He is a fisherman in Alaska in a small town called Sitka where we live for about a third of the year. And we had decided when I became pregnant with Anna that I would stay behind in Colorado where we're from because I'd had a C-section with my first daughter, Zalie. And I did not want to fly up to a remote island and either have to have an elective C-section because I didn't want to recover from surgery with a husband who fishes seven days a week. And I wanted just a chance at non-surgical labor and that I would stay back and then he would fly home to Colorado when I gave him the call. But the way it works, there's only, you know, three major flights a day or four maybe that leave Sitka. So we knew that if I called him in the middle of the night, which I did, he would likely miss her birth, which happened at dawn. And then he arrived the next morning. Um, let's see, yeah, her second day of life was when he arrived. And so there was, it was just a charged atmosphere. There was worry, there was his absence. We're very much a team as parents and I just needed him to get there and and he did. But when he did arrive, I, I vocalized to him and I did over the phone that something was different about her. Mm -hmm. And what did he say? He is a pacifist, so he did not want to initially validate that something might be wrong. But he did say, I told him that she was born small and Mm. that she didn't make a sound. And he said, okay, I want to see her. Don't worry yet. We don't know anything yet. And soon we would know everything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so again, as
0: you write in the book, and as anyone who's um, uh, gone through. Labor and delivery knows that after, like in the in the in the day or two after a, a baby is born, it's not like all peace, right? Like you don't just right. hold get get to hold your baby forever and no one bothers you in the room. Right. Um, there's just a lot of testing that's done uh, on newborns, and so can you describe that to me, like the tests that um, normal tests that were done on Anna, and then you write about. Uh, the doctors that uh, come in and out of uh, the room, and, and you write that they seemed weird. So what was going on mm-hmm. there? Yeah.
1: So probably the first test that they ran on Anna is called the newborn dried blood spot, which is where they prick the baby's heel, and then they squeeze out a number of blood drops onto a card. At the time, and even with my firstborn, I didn't know what those diseases were that the blood test would be screening for. And so I just watched in silence without much knowledge. It's not explained to women. You just move forward through these sort of checkpoints after you have a baby. And she was so tiny, the nurse could not get her blood out of her heel. And so it just was more, everything just sort of seemed more acute with her. And she really had to squeeze out this blood while I waited. And then after that, the rotating pediatricians from Children's Hospital came into the room. And there were usually two, there were always two of them for some reason at that hospital. And they would bring her over towards the window and do a physical exam. And they wouldn't say anything, but they didn't say anything to me either. Mm. It didn't have this same tone that it had had with my firstborn. There was definitely. Uh, perplexity or some kind of, you know, puzzlement about them. And then the last thing, and this is part of the newborn screening process in all states, is that a hearing technician rolls a cart into the room where they test the newborn's hearing. And she inserted the wires into Anna's ears, looking for an instinctual response that the ear makes to sound through the clicks of the wires. And I sat there for a couple minutes, and with my firstborn, Zaylee, I didn't think much about it. Luke and I are hearing. We didn't have any hearing loss genetically in either of our families, and they handed Zaylee back to me, and she passed the test. With Anna, as soon as they put the wires in her ears, I was like, she's not going to pass. And I waited with this breathlessness until the technician handed her to me, and she said, I'm sorry, but she failed on both sides. Wow.
0: She actually fell asleep through the test, right?
1: She did. Some babies do because okay. it's it's such an instinctual response. They can be asleep and the test will still register if their ear is, you know, processing sound or not. But she didn't have any response. And how did that hit you? At the time, it hit me hard. But I held out this hope that she was small and the doctors then validated this by saying when babies are born small for their age, small for gestational age, there's often fluid trapped in the ear and it will drain and she will pass the next time we run the test. So the next day they ran the test again and again she did not pass it. And then they said you will bring her back to the hospital in a week for another test. And so there was sort of this implication that we'll keep trying until she passes instead of an acknowledgement that maybe she won't pass, maybe she doesn't hear. And inside me, this anxiety just kind of grew and grew like a mass. And I went through each test thinking her body knows something that we don't.
0: Hmm.
1: Well, when we come back, we're going to find out what
0: caused um, little Anna to fail those hearing tests almost immediately after she was born. It's the story that Megan Nix tells in her book, Remedies for Sorrow, an extraordinary child, a secret kept from pregnant women and a mother's pursuit of the truth. More in a moment. This is On point.
2: Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com onpoint On Point today to get 10% off your first month. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Megan
0: Nix is with us today. She's author of Remedies for Sorrow, An Extraordinary Child, A Secret Kept from Pregnant Women, and a Mother's Pursuit of the Truth. So, Megan, tell us uh, about how you discovered what was causing uh, little Anna's inability to hear.
1: So after we left the hospital, we got home and we needed to bring her back for that for that hearing test a week later, which she didn't pass. And after that was the pediatrician visit, which usually happens at 14 days of age. We bumped it up to 10 days of age because I was flying to Alaska the next day with my daughters and my mom, Luke already returned to Alaska to continue his fishing season. And so at the pediatrician's appointment, our doctor, his name's Brian Kono, he's an excellent pediatrician, he held her and he noted her hearing tests in her chart that she hadn't passed and her size. And he said, I wanna test her for a little known but common virus called CMV. And I said, What does CMV stand for? And he said cytomegalovirus. And I said, I've never heard of that. And it sounded just odd. It sounded like there's no chance. This can't be common. I would have heard of it before. And we come from a healthy place where I'm educated. I know how to handle pregnancy. Seemed like a stretch. And I needed to go pack. And I had a raging toddler, (laughs) you know, kind of pushing, putting pressure on me in the background of everything that I did. And I thought, I don't need to test her for this. We need to get home. We need to get this fluid out of her ears. And I said, is the test invasive? And he said, no, it's just a simple urine catch. And I said, okay, if it's not going to hurt her and it's quick, let's do it. And so a nurse named Susie attached this little pouch to her hips, which she called a potty purse. (laughs) And... The baby pees into the bag, and they catch the urine. And so I waited probably five minutes, which was great. Sometimes it can take a lot longer. And the test went out to the lab. I asked Dr. Kono if if we could still go to Alaska. And he said, your husband's there. I know how important it is to be as a whole family. Why don't you go up there? We'll call you. And in the meantime, you can see the pediatrician up there if you need to. So we flew to Alaska and um, actually before that, at home, I started to Google CMV Mm -hmm. and I was terrified. The spectrum was haunting and unjust in its array from asymptomatic to early infant death and almost everything I could think of in between, deafness, blindness, cerebral palsy, epilepsy, Autism, stillbirth. And I had never heard of it. Mm-hmm. And one thing that that really just struck me was the prevalence of it. I read online that one in two hundred babies is born with congenital CMV. And the one in two hundred is is striking. Against all of the other things that we know about during pregnancy like toxoplasmosis Which is the kitty litter disease affects one in ten thousand babies? And so I just couldn't believe that that this was a thing that was prevalent and unvoiced Mm. in medicine and so We got to Alaska. I didn't get a phone call because it was fourth of July weekend Monday I called the doctor's office and the nurse said He's gonna call you tonight, and I sort of panicked. And we hung up. And she called me back, and she said, "I need to tell you now. She tested positive for congenital CMV."
3: Mm.
0: So, the numbers that you just presented—that one in two hundred—the um, CDC reports that number, right? Making mm-hmm. making CMV the the largest cause of uh, non genetic right? Uh, birth birth defects. Um, so one in 200 babies in this country is born with a, a CMV infection. But the CDC also says, just, just to be clear, that of those uh, one in 200 babies, maybe five of them will have some kind of major health impact. So that means that overall one in 1,000 babies um, born in this country will have a, a health impact from from CMV. Um it still makes it the biggest cause of uh, non-genetic uh, um, birth defects. We're going to talk a bit more about what it is. It's a virus uh, mm-hmm. and and the um the sort of uh, advice and counseling around um, how obstetricians and and midwives should uh, talk with expecting mothers in prenatal visits. But tell me, a little bit more about, OK, after you discovered this, after you were given that positive diagnosis from for CMV, for Anna, I mean, what happened next? It must have been like a complete maelstrom upending your life almost.
1: It was for a long time. It was this storm of emotions and research and confusion and anger, really. When I started researching in the small library in our town and I realized that the main vector for CMV transmission is toddlers, that one in three toddlers carries cytomegalovirus in their saliva and that 90% of women don't know CMV exists. I was just totally taken aback and outraged that this had never been mentioned during pregnancy when we are told to avoid, like I said, kitty litter, lunch meats, sushi, alcohol, and this risk was right in front of me in a toddler. And some people say that, you know, my, the first question usually people ask me is, well, how do you avoid a toddler? Well, during prenatal appointments, it should just be as easy as the other things that we avoid, even if we know it's not possible to totally avoid their saliva. Studies have shown that if women know to use their own toothbrush while pregnant, not finish their toddler snacks, kiss them on the top of the head instead of the mouth, their chances of contracting CMV during pregnancy can be reduced by like 80%. And just the knowledge that that this had not been presented to me, even if I had caught CMV, even if it had happened, I wanted the knowledge. I wanted the honest conversation with an obstetrician during both of my pregnancies Mm. during during all of my subsequent pregnancy pregnancies too, where that conversation was absent. And I, I began to find literature that stated that this knowledge would be too impractical and burdensome for women to handle. That's the language that the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, ACOG uses. Mm. And that just rubbed me as entirely paternalistic to decide for us what we could or couldn't handle. And to decide for us that ignorance would be better than saving our children from life-threatening disabilities or stillbirth. Mm -hmm. I mean, this knowledge that could save a child was not given. And so very quickly, I realized that I wanted to read another mother's journey through this disease. And I couldn't find one. There was no book. And so I wanted to write the book. And I wanted to present this information that was never in front of me. And that clearly wasn't in front of most of the American population either.
0: Yeah. Well, Megan, I want to ask you to just hang on here for a little bit because I'm going to bring in Dr. Sally Permar into the conversation, uh, and the three of us will talk more together about uh, CMV and pregnancy. Dr. Permar is chair of pediatrics at Weill Cornell Medicine and a physician-in-chief at Komansky Children's Hospital at New York Presbyterian. Dr. Permar, welcome to On Point.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: So give us a little bit of background on CMV or uh, cytomegalovirus. What exactly is it? I mean, it's, it's a viral infection, but how would we describe what it is?
3: Yeah, so I describe it as the uh, most common infectious cause of birth defects and brain damage throughout the entire globe. Um, it is a very common virus that... Um, most of the world, um, as adults and even um, in childhood, uh, acquire. And um, in uh, underdeveloped regions, most women have the infection before pregnancy. But in uh, more developed regions, about half of women will have the infection prior to pregnancy. Mm. And in um, in
0: in in children, not newborns, but in children and adults, how does the a CMV infection present?
3: It's often asymptomatic. So it's a virus that um, many of us carry, but don't ever know when we were infected. It's one that's passed very easily with um, contact with body fluids. So close contact is sort of how um, it's best um, transmitted. It's also transmitted through breastfeeding, um, transmitted um, often by toddlers with how they like to share their Fluids, and um, also through sexual activity.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm I'm seeing here. This is from the 2015 um, ACOG guidance that was put out. Uh, ACOG again being the American Congress of Obstetrics and Gynecology, uh, and it says that the prevalence of CMV. Uh, it whether it's primary or secondary infection really varies uh, geographically in and actually by socioeconomic status. Like you were talking about a little earlier, Dr. Permar, um, it, in the United States, it could range from 0.7 percent to 4 percent of of pregnant women. Does that make sense to you? That big broad uh, uh, variance.
3: Yes, it's very dependent on what uh, one's exposure risk is during pregnancy. So if you're someone um, who lives with many other CMV-infected individuals, which which is uh, more common in certain geographic areas, um, it's more common in lower socioeconomic status um, individuals and uh, minorities, and in uh, immigrant populations. Um, So those groups are often more exposed to CMV during pregnancy, however, they may have Um, been more likely to have the infection already before pregnancy and therefore have some immunity. Uh But a really risky time is when a woman has no immunity to CMV before pregnancy and then is exposed for the first time during pregnancy, which often second or third time moms can be in that category because they have um, toddlers who may have picked it up from other toddlers and then also uh, people that work with young children, like um, teachers or daycare workers, are also highly at risk.
0: Yeah. Okay. Now, Megan, I'm going to presume that when you were having your prenatal visits while pregnant with Anna, I mean, you kind of said it, right, that this this uh, potential infection, CMV, never came up in conversation, right?
1: Right. Never. Never uttered by a doctor. I was never tested for CMV before or during pregnancy, so... I don't know that I'd ever contracted it before having Anna. I assume that I contracted a primary case of it because she was born symptomatic. Mm -hmm. And a primary case will cross the placenta about 30 to 40% of the time, whereas in these other populations that Dr. Permar is talking about, where women generally have already had a CMV infection prior to pregnancy, A reinfection with a new strain will only cross the placenta about 1% of the time. So like she said, women who have no antibodies to CMV and a toddler at home are high risk for contracting it. And because most women aren't tested for it, it's savvy to assume that you just need to be careful that you could either never have had it before Or you could contract a new strain of it and either one could end up impacting Mm. a fetus. Mm. And I wanted to say um, just to piggyback on what Dr. Permar said um, in terms of CMV being passed through breast milk, bodily fluids, that that toddlers are the real risk. And she can correct me if I'm wrong, but that like breastfeeding when you have a child, you cannot give a child congenital CMV by breastfeeding. Breastfeeding um, a child who is healthy at birth will never impact them with CMV. Even even with Anna, I could breastfeed her and it was very healthy for her, even if it was in my breast milk, to, to be breastfed. When that's a risk is when you have a preemie mm. and you might have cytomegalovirus in your breast milk. And preemies are are fed otherwise in the NICU anyways. Right. Um, OK, so I want to
0: build our understanding about why ACOG um, does not offer guidance that says talk about this um, with with mothers in uh, prenatal visits. So Dr. Permar, I, I'm seeing here, again, from this 2015 bulletin, that cytomegalovirus can be detected with viral culture through PCR testing, right? but that it's uh, still not recommended. Universal screening is not recommended uh, for pregnant women. Why is that?
3: Yes, so there's a lot of work that still needs to be done for um, good diagnostic tests for CMV. Um, The ones that we have now, especially for pregnancy, are really um, not adequate to give us all the information you might need in order to um, uh, determine for sure if a woman has um, recently had uh, a CMV exposure and that would then put her fetus at risk. Uh, Right now, we um, have the ability to use a serology test or an antibody test um, that can tell you if a woman has had the infection before pregnancy or up until uh, the time that you test them. We can test for the type of antibodies that are more chronic infection called IgG and antibodies that are more indicative of earlier infection, more recent infection, which is IgM. However, neither are are perfect in telling you exactly when CMV was uh, last, This the woman was last infected with CMV. And because, um, unlike rubella, where if you test a woman for rubella immunity, you know for sure she, uh, if testing positive, is protected against acquiring that infection and giving it to her fetus, because that is another cause of congenital infections. Um, But with CMV, even if you have immunity before pregnancy, you could still pass on the virus to the baby. It's a virus that lives latently within all of us and you can become reinfected. So it makes it challenging, even if you do the proper testing, to provide good information. And I think that's why um, obstetricians have been... um uh, hesitant to, to make strong recommendations, though in other countries they do use the CMV serology test more often.
0: They do. Okay. So we're going to talk more when we come back uh, about understanding what can be done, what what could be done, um, about at least getting more information, more education out there about CMV mm-hmm. and pregnancy. So Dr. Permar and Megan Nix hang on here for just a minute. We'll be right back. This is On point. This is On Point. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. And today, Megan Nix is with us. She's author of a book called... Remedies for Sorrow, an Extraordinary Child, a Secret Kept from Pregnant Women, and a Mother's Pursuit of the Truth. It's a memoir about her experience with her daughter, Anna, who was born with congenital CMV. Uh, CMV is actually the number one cause of non-genetic congenital birth defects in this country. And Dr. Sally Permar is with us as well. She's Chair of Pediatrics at Weill Cornell Medicine and Physician-in-Chief at Komansky Children's Hospital, at New York Presbyterian. Um, now, I, I want to, again, just dive further into how the American Congress of Obstetrics and Gynecology came about its recommendation to not screen and not discuss CMV with pregnant women and uh, first of all, I'm seeing here that um, – actually, well, let me back up here. Dr. Permar, you had mentioned before the break that in other countries, particularly in some European countries, they do do regular CMV screening. Um, if indeed it's a, a little difficult f- to be perfectly diagnostic off of the, the screening um, and it's also difficult to treat – what do they do after the screening I mean how do they counsel do you know how they counsel women after that in in European countries
3: yeah a little bit okay. there um I would say in um there are other European countries like um, Italy and um in uh, France and other places where um, there is more testing um uh, of serologies during pregnancy like for toxoplasmosis also that we talked about um but I think First and foremost, you can use the serologic testing for conversation about mm-hmm. CMV. That um, really, um, as Megan um, rightly said as well, the a woman who has no immunity to CMV going into pregnancy, and especially someone that has um, toddlers at home, it is a high-risk group. Uh, in fact, I found myself in that um, in that category in my second pregnancy uh, with a child in daycare. And so I used that information to make sure I avoided my um, uh, toddler's fluids uh, throughout my my second pregnancy. Um, so I think it, it can provide counseling um, in addition to just a way to introduce the um, the the risk of CMB for pregnant women. But then also there have been sort of um, more on the forefront of trying um, different options, none of them great right now, mm-hmm. for um, treating a woman should it, it look like she's had an acute CMB infection during pregnancy to try to reduce the risk of passing it to the fetus as well as disease in the fetus. So far, um, the hyperimmune globulin, something that was one of the earliest uh, therapeutics we used for COVID, has been used and, and really hasn't um, worked to prevent or to prevent the infection or prevent disease. And then some antivirals have been used, but those come with some uh, toxicities. And so we're still really without a great treatment, even even if we have the information on the serology.
0: We're going to circle back to that in a second here. But I I wanted to just, uh, again, just offer people this this quote from... the 2015 guidance for uh, obstetricians. And it says that the the limitations of antibody screening and differentiating primary from uh, recurrent infections, they say, makes it really difficult to use screening in counseling um, uh, pregnant mothers. And just as you talked about, uh, Dr. Permar, Um, It says that maternal immunity does not eliminate the possibility of fetal infection because 75 percent of congenital CMV infections worldwide may be due to reactivation of latent virus, which is in a lot of people. And in addition, there's no proven treatment, which makes uh, ACOG say that further diminishes the potential benefit of universal screening. We can come back to that in a second. But Megan, I want to play something for you um that has to do with what you said earlier about, well, if women were counseled on the existence of this uh, of CMV as a, a thing they ought to consider as they're um going through pregnancy, um you know, what would that counseling look like? And could it be something that um, would lead women to change their behaviors around their toddlers? Well, um, as you quoted, the guidance from ACOG says uh, such guidelines may be difficult to implement because they're considered impractical and burdensome. And ACOG also says at present, patient instruction remains unproven as a method to reduce the risk of congenital CMV infection. Well, we talked to Dr. Lin Yi. She's an OBGYN and medical director of uh, the Northwestern Memorial Hospital Women's Infectious Disease Program. And she told us, She thinks it's impossible for moms and toddlers to completely protect themselves from CMV.
4: There's no data that would say that any particular hygiene recommendations are successful at preventing CMV versus just living your life as normal. But what I do think is important is that people who are pregnant pay attention to how they're feeling and their symptoms. And if you have symptoms of CMV, sort of flu-like or even COVID-like symptoms, seek medical care, not just because it could be CMV, but it could, it could be any number of things that would warrant letting your OBGYN know about it. Ultimately, I don't think that the, um, there's enough evidence to suggest we should be doing standardized hygiene education or any other standardized preventive measures for CMB.
0: So that's Dr. Lin Yi, an OBGYN and medical director at Northwestern Memorial Hospital's Women's Infectious Disease Program. I want to get a response from both of you on that. But Megan, you go ahead. You go first.
1: Oh, boy, I have so many things to say. First of all, another reason that we need to educate women during pregnancy about CMV is to educate doctors themselves during pregnancies and in the neonatal sphere. Less than 10% of babies are ever diagnosed with CMV who have it. And so one part of implementing some kind of education program during pregnancy is alerting doctors to the possibility that even if we don't have accurate data during pregnancy, we should be testing all newborns for CMV in order to treat the ones who are symptomatic and might benefit from antiviral therapy. So when Anna was born, we did have the good fortune of testing her within the necessary time frame. You have to test a baby for CMV before they're one month old, because otherwise they could have contracted CMV as a cold from a toddler in the house and are fine with it. And we don't want parents, you know, freaking out that they had congenital CMV when it's just a postnatal contraction. So you have to test newborns for it and get them on an antiviral before it is a false positive. So that's, that's another reason for education during pregnancy of both women and their doctors. I'd like for the doctor you just quoted to look at Dr. Lanzieri's study that shows that there was a seven-fold increase in women having babies with congenital CMV when they gave birth when they did not know about it during pregnancy versus the ones who were counseled and knew that CMV existed. Now she's right and and, and we do not have great larger studies to prove that hygienic precautions are successful to the extent that we want them to be during pregnancy But medicine works on supply and demand. And so if we are not demanding bigger studies, more pregnant participants to see if these measures do work, then doctors continue to call CMV something that we shouldn't worry about. Mm. It is the leading cause of infectious birth defects. And if we are saving one woman from a stillborn child, because she understands where it is, and probably way more than that. CMV is the leading pathogen linked to stillbirth. We need to be talking about it. We need to be looking at solutions. And even if those solutions aren't perfect right now, you know, Dr. Mark Schleiss is a a doctor in Minnesota who I quote in the book. And there's, you know, testing newborns is also complicated. The whole package is complicated. That doesn't mean we just put it under the rug. He says that why, why let the perfect be the enemy of the good? We don't have all the right answers now, but in 10 years, we might. And mm-hmm. so, you know, to just stop the train and say we can't do anything about this enables the medical industry to not do anything about it. And meanwhile, children are being born severely disabled with life-threatening challenges.
0: Yeah. Dr. Permar, um, so we're hearing kind of a wide uh, spectrum of interpretations of of studies. and and to Megan's point, there actually aren't that many uh, on um that happened during pregnancy to begin with. We'll come back to that in a second. But regarding um the uh, uh, what happens when a woman is counseled about potential CMV infections from from their toddlers and potential for behavior change then, what does the evidence base say? I mean I'm trying to it's hard for me to sort of figure out. like aCOG says, no good um but megan quoted another study that says there's a 70 to 80 percent change
3: yeah so i think what you're seeing is that um the studies that have been done have not all uh had the same results and therefore it's it's kind of um open to interpretation and so uh physicians and obstetricians in um, some European countries are interpreting the data differently than really um, our, at least the established U.S. ACOG um, guidelines. And I think the one of the really, uh, I think, tangible things that can tell you that behavior change can change um, acquisition of CMB risk is um, if you think about hospitals where uh, we have lots of patients that have CMV Lots of patients that have uh, immune-compromising conditions that leads you to be more at risk of CMV disease and shedding the virus often, but there's never been nosocomial transmission of CMV reported, and essentially that's because of universal precautions. Anytime you're going to come in contact with uh, bodily fluids of a patient, it's required to wear gloves, there's lots of hand washing, um, and we're audited on that, and but that can reduce the risk. So I think, you know, thinking about nosocomial transmission in hospitals really shows that behavior change can work. Mm. Okay.
0: Well, um, one thing that there seems to be a lot of agreement on here is that there's not there's an inadequate evidence base, let's say, for, um, for uh, regarding uh, infectious diseases in pregnancy to begin with. And so, I want to once again just hear quickly from Dr. Lin Yi. She's at Northwestern Memorial Hospital, uh, and here's what she said. Um, she believes that funding more funding needs to be dedicated for pregnancy research in general
4: by excluding pregnant people from research on potential diagnostic or therapeutic strategies, we are affecting the whole family unit and not generating evidence fast enough on how to give the best possible care to the pregnant person. And we've seen this time and time again. You know, other diseases, infectious diseases, show the same thing. Hepatitis C, for example, the the research in pregnant people is a decade behind the research in non-pregnant people. CMV, the research on creating a vaccine, is far behind where technologically we potentially should be. I think that as a scientific community, what should change is greater attention and prioritization of pregnancy as an important period for research.
0: That's Dr. Lin Yi at Northwestern Memorial Hospital. Now, a little bit earlier, Megan, you used a really kind of a key word about paternalistic in terms of the guidance that uh, ACOG has given out. That's a word that Dr. Gail Demler Harrison also uses. She's a pediatric infectious disease doctor at Texas Children's Hospital. And she says that not giving the CMV guidance uh, to women is paternalistic in her view. And she wants the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists to revisit their guidelines.
2: I think it would be totally reasonable to throw into the bag that pregnant people get when they are told they're pregnant something about CMV, a pamphlet, you know, just like you're told about, uh, you know, lunch meats, kitty litter, um, travel to certain places. The other thing that I think, which it's not the most popular opinion, is that adding a CMV IgG antibody to the prenatal screening would be simple. It starts the conversation about what is CMV. Oh, well, you've never had it. Well, try and stay that way. Oh, you've had it, um, but you can be reinfected. And here are some ways.
0: Dr. Permar, just really briefly, I mean, we could do a whole show on this, but really briefly, who writes the guidance, right? I mean, if we're talking about uh, this word paternalistic keeps coming up, but there's all there's this huge body of data that uh, whoever writes the guidance has to take a look at. I mean, how do, how do these conclusions get made, which then are spread to you know, every obstetrician in the United States.
3: Yeah, representatives that join committees from the obstetrics field um, would would uh, review these guidelines. And it, it takes years often to review these guidelines and, and new data is reviewed, which again goes back to that we don't have enough data or studies that that are informing them.
0: Hmm. Okay. Well, we're really getting close to the end of the program here. Unfortunately, just got a couple of minutes left. Megan, um, there's nothing stopping women right now who've heard this program, right, to go in the, into their next, you know, prenatal visit uh, and ask about CMV, right? I mean, it, it sounds like this is something that, if change is going to happen, it may have to come from from patients themselves
1: right i think that's a good way to establish that we do care and and other studies aside from testing during pregnancy when women are surveyed in both the u.s and italy 90 percent of women or more want to know about cmv and equal numbers will implement these hygienic precautions to provide the healthiest possible environment for their pregnancy and so I think the more that we have this conversation and the more women are given the latitude to make this decision for themselves. Do I want to worry about this? Do I want to avoid my toddler saliva? Or do I want to say, you know, this isn't a big concern for me? Then the better our situation is as people who are in a system of informed consent. And I think that, you know, my book lays this out. This is not simple. And yet Women having children are are willing to take on complexity, they're willing to take on challenge and my book is researched and complex and I think that people need to know all of the details about CMV to understand the real possibilities of any pregnancy. That we do not live in a zero risk environment and our children might be disabled. And that is a beautiful thing in many ways. But when we are subjecting them to life-threatening challenges, that is something that we should be preventing.
0: Well, Megan Nix's book is called Remedies for Sorrow, an Extraordinary Child, a Secret Kept from Pregnant Women, and a Mother's Pursuit of the Truth. Thank you so much for joining us today, Megan. Thank you so much for having me. And Dr. Sally Permar, Chair of Pediatrics at Weill Cornell Medicine and Physician in Chief at Comansky Children's Hospital at New York Presbyterian. Great pleasure to have you, Dr. Permar. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you for talking about this important subject.
0: I'm Magna Chakrabarti. This is On Point.